Well, good morning. Uh, my name is Steve. I see why you introduce yourself now. That is nice. That's real nice. Um, and uh, I am not one of the pastors here. I'm just one of you people. So let's see if we can get this party started. Today, we're continuing in the Gospel of Mark, and we're in chapter 6. So if you have a Bible, you want to turn there with me? Mark chapter 6, starting in verse 1. He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown, and among his relatives, and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two, and he gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there, and if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. This is the word of God. So we've been going through the Gospel of Mark uh, these last few months. And what we've been saying is that in the Gospel of Mark, what Jesus is fundamentally doing with his ministry is redefining the good life for the people who believe in him. And that phrase, good life, we keep returning to it over and over and over again. And this, these two words actually have a very rich meaning and a rich history, but... Uh, Today, advertisers have sort of co-opted those words, and they use the, that phrase, even if they don't use the phrase, they use the idea to get us to buy stuff, to persuade us to buy things. You know, I mean, the good life is living in such and such a place, or the good life is driving such and such a car, on and on. I don't have to convince you. You know this. But for the Greeks from whom we get this concept, um, or at least the philosophical concept of the good life. For the Greeks, what they meant when they talked about the good life was the entire flourishing of the human being. But not only the individual, the entire flourishing of the community as well. And for them, when they said good life, what they meant was a life of virtue. Now, that's not what we mean by it as Americans, um, but even so, even so, our definition of the good life, contemporary, their definition of the good life, both of them 
are as candles to the sun when Jesus comes in and says, I've got a different kind of good life for you. The good life of the kingdom of God. You see, in Jesus Christ, he comes and he starts preaching and he says that there is infinite happiness in me. There is forgiveness of sins. There's resurrection of the body. There is a new and redeemed family into which you can be grafted. There is an escape from condemnation. There is eternal happiness in the age to come. And that, according to Jesus, is the best version of the good life. Now, if that's true, why is it that everybody isn't flocking to Jesus and grabbing his feet and saying, I, I want this? Now, in fact, it's kind of the opposite, right? That in general, in our American culture, in Western culture more generally, people are looking at the teachings of Jesus and those who take them seriously will say, yeah, that, that's not the height of freedom. That, that feels like the height of oppression. That doesn't seem like the good life. That seems like shackles. So why is that? It's because the good life that Jesus provides for us doesn't arrive in this life mostly. We don't get it mostly in this age and in this life. Now, every once in a while, we get wafts of the breezes of paradise, but it's a passing phase. It happens in the blink of an eye, and it awakens everything within us, and we, we, we long for it. We want more of it. It delights us to our very core, but the breeze passes away in a moment. And in this life, it's mostly hardship and affliction and suffering and difficulty. And I've been talking about the good life and Jesus, good life. And you just hear me say that and you're like, that doesn't sound like the good life at all. That actually sounds like the opposite of the good life. Because all you have to, I mean, Jesus' message is, it is hard, it is, and all you have to do is die, and then you get the good life. Now, it's obvious then why so many people hear this offer of the good life and say no thanks and cast it like a stone into the sea. Like that, it doesn't make sense to us because it requires, here's what this version of the good life requires, it requires that you believe and, and are fully convinced that there, really is, that there really is an age to come. If that's shaky, then there's no way that we will embrace this good life. Because if this life is all that there is, well, we better get something good here. But if there is an age to come, then this version of the good life we can start to believe Jesus. Now, all of that is just by way of introduction because today's text, we're gonna see something here that, that doesn't look like the good life that we're used to hearing about from 
the Maserati dealership. Like we're, we're gonna hear something in Jesus' life, this particular occasion as he returns to Nazareth, we're gonna see that, that one thing that, that will be central to the good life in this age is rejection. <laughs> yes, all right. Um, and so, so the summary of this text is basically this, that the, the people reject Jesus, people of Nazareth, his hometown, reject Jesus because they stumble over him. They reject Jesus because they stumble over him. Now, we're gonna look at this under three headings. First, why did they stumble? Secondly, what were the consequences of their stumbling? And then third, and briefly, what does this mean for us? Why do they stumble, the consequences of their stumbling, and what does it mean for us? So first, why did they stumble? Well, let's look. Verses one through three, he says, he went away from there and came to his hometown. He doesn't name it, but that's Nazareth. And his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many who heard him were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things? And what is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done in his name? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, brother and brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Now, the first thing I want to focus on is, as he was teaching, it says, they were astonished. Now, um, this word in, in English, it, it can have like, Positive and negative connotation. So positively, you know, you can be reading a, a particularly wonderful book and, and come across this magnificent passage and just set the book down and you're oh, astonished. Um, or if you're hiking uh, in the mountains and you turn the corner and all of a sudden, unexpectedly, the trees uh, open up and, and you see this magnificent, magnificent vista before you and it takes your breath away. Like, it's astonishing. This is not the way that these people are astonished. It's more like uh, if you were to hear a crash in the middle of the night and walk downstairs and find that there was an intruder in your house. It's that kind of astonishing. It's more like, it's less like, uh, and more like being struck with panic. And so they are, they're not wondering, They're they're not in awe they're suddenly struck with panic at Jesus' teaching. Now, why? Why do they have this reaction? It's a good question. Well, we see it in the second half of verse 2. Their questions. Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Now, I don't know about you, but when I initially hear this, what, I, what I'm hearing them ask is, uh, where did he get these things? What is this wisdom given to? That sounds like the emphasis, but that's not the emphasis. The emphasis sounds more like this. Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? The reason I say that is because the very next thing out of their mouth is, is not this the carpenter? They're astonished, they're struck with panic because Jesus is standing up 
teaching them as one with authority and astounding wisdom is coming out of his mouth. He has not grown up at the feet of a rabbi like Gamaliel and Paul. He is the carpenter. He is teaching them as one who is taught and that strikes panic into their hearts. Now, it's hard to under it's hard to understand why this would freak them out so much because in our American mindset, we value being like a, a meritocracy. We, we believe fundamentally, this is part of the American ethos, that, that you can be anything you want to be. If you work hard enough, you can always rise above your station. In fact, our, our favorite stories are those about the, the stories about those who rise above their station, who start out in rags and go to riches, who start out poor and become something magnificent. Like, th- those are our favorite stories. Um, but to the ancients, like, the ancient mindset was the opposite. And, and by the way, it's not good or bad, it just is. Their mindset was your geography and your heredity determined who you would be. And it was immovable. That, that was just how they thought. Like, isn't this the carpenter? What is he doing standing up and teaching? And what is he doing with all, where did he get this wisdom? That's not what this man is supposed to have. So, I mean, you can try, try to imagine it this way. So, Abraham Lincoln. Everybody loves Abraham Lincoln. Uh, you know, he was poor, became president, the, one of the greatest, if not the greatest president in the, uh, in the history of America. Had somebody come to him in his youth and said, you, Abraham Lincoln, living in abject poverty, you are nothing, and this is where you must remain. You must stay in this place, at this station, you cannot rise above it. Like, that, that offends us just in, in the same way that it would have offended them, except in reverse, okay? So, so Jesus is teaching them, and they're offended for the opposite reason. No longer is he the carpenter. Now he is the untaught teacher of staggering wisdom and the worker of miracles. And as a result of that, as they're bringing all of this into their consideration, the result of that is... At the end of verse 3, and they took offense at him. Literally, they stumbled over him. They could not deny that Jesus had power. They, they admit it. They can't deny that he had wisdom. They admit it. Where did he get these things? How is he doing this? They admit what they see. But what confounds them is that carpenters are not prophets. Carpenters sit at the feet of their father and learn the trade. They don't sit at the feet of a rabbi and gain this kind of wisdom. Where did he get this? And so the natural conclusion, if you take those two premises, that he has great wisdom that we can't account for, and he is a worker of great miracles, The necessary conclusion then is that he is who he said he was. He is the Christ, the Son of God, the King of the kingdom of God. He is Emmanuel, God with us. 
God has visited us in Christ. That's the natural conclusion if you accept the premises. Now, every once in a while, uh, to my students' great horror, I teach uh, formal logic. And, um, and one of the most basic principles of formal logic is if the premises are true, you know this, if the premises, are, it's one of my former students, if the, you too, both of you, you could see they're, they're too young to have so many wrinkles in their face. I did that. Um, no, y'all are looking good. I, I gotta stop. All right. Now, listen, listen. One of the most basic principles of formal logic is this. If the premises are true, and the argument is valid, then the conclusion must be true. If the premises are true, the argument is valid, the conclusion must be true. And here's where they stumbled. These people accepted the truth of the premises. He has great power. He has magnificent and astonishing wisdom but they rejected the conclusion. And by the way, Isaiah, so many years before this, said this very thing was going to happen. He said, behold, I am laying a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. That's the Lord speaking through Isaiah. I am laying a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And here it comes to pass in Mark chapter 6 as Jesus returns to his hometown. So, that's the first point. Why did they stumble? They stumbled because although they could see the truth of the premises, they rejected the conclusion. Now, let's go to the second point, the consequences of their stumbling. What happened as a result of this? They, are, they were offended by him, okay, then what? It says in verse five, and he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and he healed them. Now, to, <laughs> that sounds, that's, that's going to create some stumbling for some people here for a second. Like, it says he could not do any mighty works, or many anyway, um, because of their unbelief. Now, let me try to translate it for you from the Greek, literally, and he could do no mighty work there. That's what it says. It, that, there's, no th there's no recourse to the Greek. That's what it says. He could do no mighty work there because they were obstinate, because they refused to believe he could do no mighty work among them. Now, we see this all throughout the Gospels. Jesus never heals somebody unless they desire to be healed. He never thrusts his power on anyone, only those who are willing. And the people of Nazareth make their desire plain. You offend us, and we want nothing to do with you. And so the conclusion there is, verse 6, and Jesus marveled because of their unbelief. Huh. He marveled because of their unbelief. Now, in the Gospels, 
There are only two times when Jesus marvels at somebody, when we have this word marvel. The first, well, this first is right here. The other time is with the Roman centurion, the Greek, I don't know if you remember this, but basically the Roman centurion hears about Jesus and his reputation for doing works of power and he comes to Jesus and he says, listen, my daughter is sick, can you heal her? And Jesus says, yes, I can, let's go to your house. And the Roman centurion said, no need. Like, I know that you are under authority, as I myself am under authority, and I know, because I'm the kind of person who can say something and people do it, I know that you can just say the word and she will be healed without you ever having to come into my house. And it says that at that, Jesus marveled. He, first of all, he was a Greek, um, and, and Jesus even says, not even in Israel have I seen such faith as I've seen in this man. Because he was a Greek. He was a Gentile, he was, which means he was not taught in the scriptures. He did not know the long history of salvation that God had wrought on this people's behalf. He did not know about the covenants, or if he did, only marginally. He merely saw Jesus and his teaching and his healing And he came to the natural conclusion. This is a man under authority. And he can heal my daughter with a word. That's all he knew, just by looking at him. And so Jesus marvels. And the reason why he marvels at that man is because as a Gentile, he had been given so little and believed so much. And here... Back in Nazareth, these people, Jews, had been given so much and believed so little. And he marvels at them. So what does he do? The last part of verse 6, and he went about among the villages teaching. He leaves. He goes away. I'll tell you what makes me marvel is as we have been working through this, and if you've read the scriptures, you'll know that over and over, God Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth, the owner and maker of the earth and the fullness thereof, the possessor of unlimited power, what what astonishes me is how easily he is refused. Like, When people refuse him, he leaves. (laughs) That is amazing to me. Like um, Matt preached, was it last week? Yes, Uh, the the story about the the man who was demon-possessed and uh, he lived out in the tombs and, and Jesus comes and with a word of power exercises the legion of demons, sends them into the pigs and the people, when they saw it, when they observed this great power, begged him to leave and he left. He didn't say, you don't understand. He didn't say, no, you don't get to tell me. No, he left. Or, if you'll recall, um, when God's people wanted a king, 
Like their vocation, this is back in the Old Testament in 1 Samuel, their vocation as God's people, as given to us in the book of Exodus, was you shall be a nation set apart from every other nation. You shall not be like every other nation. And one of the primary ways in which they would not be like every other nation is that the Lord would be their king. They would not have a human king. But by the time of the judges and Samuel, they want a king. They want a man on the throne and not the Lord. And like, I mean, if, I don't have time, but if, if you knew the story that, of all that he brought them through, of all that he'd give them, of the astounding generosity that he had given to them, the mercy and the grace and the kindness and the covenant and all of it, when, when they were nothing and they continued to refuse him and continued, like that moment, he should have incinerated them. Ingrates. But he accepts their refusal. He says, Samuel, give them a king. Because they have not rejected you, they've rejected me. Or maybe the most evocative version of this, to me, is in Romans chapter 1. Paul is going through uh, how people in their natural state exchange the glory of God for the glory of the created order. And they worship created things rather than the creator. And what Paul says three times in that passage is that when people do that, when they continue to reject the kindness and the favor and the grace and the goodness of God, he says it three times, God gives them up to their passions. It's almost, I mean, it's almost as if he was saying, if you want this life, you can have it. Like, the, and by the way, in this passage, in Romans chapter one, this is God's judgment on these people, to give them up. So what, and I've said this before, and it always bears saying again, what judgment feels like in that case is getting exactly what you want. God is so easily refused. If anyone stumbles over Jesus, if anyone is offended by him and says to him, leave me alone, it appears that he will oblige. He will give you what you most want, which is a life without him. And if you want that into eternity, he will give you that as well. There's that great passage in The Great Divorce um, by C.S. Lewis where he says, there are really only two kinds of people in this world. Those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says, thy will be done. He will oblige. Now, maybe, as you're listening, there's a realization dawning in you. You, you think, I, I have rejected Christ. I, I have been that person. I've gotten what I wanted, a life without him. You see the premises that Christ, you would say, Christ, yeah, he's a great teacher. He's a great man. It, you may even go as far to say he's a man of God. But you reject the conclusion saying, even so, you will have no authority in my life. And maybe you're realizing that he gave you exactly what you wanted. 
which was a life without him, where he doesn't bother you anymore, and he gives you what you wanted. And maybe, maybe, there's the faintest flicker of faith inside of you that says, but I don't want him to give me up. It doesn't please me. Well, that's you. I do have good news for you. Despite, this, this, is, this is what's astonishing. Despite how easily refused he is, despite how willing he apparently is to just say, fine, if you want it, you can have it, it seems to me that he cannot help himself but return to us over and over and over again and plead with us to return to him. Now, here's why I say this, because Mark chapter 6, Jesus is in Nazareth. Now, if you know your Gospels, you know this is, in fact, his second return, or I should say his second occasion to be in Nazareth. This, this is a return to Nazareth. The first time he went to Nazareth, Nazareth was in Luke chapter 4. And in Luke chapter 4, he was just beginning his ministry. He comes and, to Nazareth, and he preaches in the synagogue, just like he's doing here, except he says more there than he did here, and it, it infuriates them. And they, they become so incensed by what he says that they take him, they forcibly remove him from the synagogue, they take him to a cliff, and they're about to throw him over to kill him. And who knows why or how, but it says that he passed through the midst of them and walked away. And that should prove to us. Now, after that, he comes again. After that manner of rejection, he doesn't leave them to wallow in the consequences of their rejection. He returns. So this passage in Mark chapter 6 at least teaches us about the long-suffering mercy and love of Jesus. Now we can witness the full extent of his mercy. The reason why they couldn't kill him by throwing him off the, the cliff that day was because it was not his time. There was an appointed time where he would be slain, where the rejection would be complete. In the last week of his life, it was all rejection. The religious establishment rejected him. His disciples, when he needed them the most, rejected him. Peter, the rock on whom Jesus would build his church, rejected him three times. And after offering his back to the whips and the rods and the thorns and the punches, Pilate stands him up, the mangled body of Christ, in front of the whole congregation and says, do you want him? And they say, no. We want Barabbas. Give us Barabbas. What shall I do with this man? Crucify him. And so they crucified him. And then even the thieves, the criminals on the cross, rejected him, hurled insults upon him. And then finally, the most powerful rejection of all, he cries out in the most powerful dereliction, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was utterly rejected. Now, I said there was good news, but that doesn't sound like good news. The good news is not that he was rejected. 
The good news is why he was rejected. If you want to know why, we'll go back to Isaiah. In Isaiah 53, verse 3, he says, He was despised and rejected by man, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. As one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. With his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The good news is that Jesus Christ was rejected for us, for the forgiveness of our sins. He was rejected in our place. The the judgment of of rejecting God, like if, if we were to reject God, our judgment would be rejection in return. But Jesus Christ himself steps into our place. He experiences, experiences the total rejection, not only of everyone who loved him, not only of everyone who hated him, but his father in heaven, he experienced utter and total rejection so that for everyone who believes in the atoning death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, they will never be rejected. And today, now listen, today, in these words, he has returned to you. Don't reject him. He, he He has returned to you to show you mercy, to invite you into the grandest version of the good life that ever existed, the life of the kingdom of God. And I implore you, don't reject it. Now, finally, what does this mean for us? I have uh, just tried to apply this to non-Christians, if that's anybody here. Let me try to apply this now to Christians. Two, two applications. Number one, let the world stumble over Jesus, not over us. You remember Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, he was emphatic that we preach Christ crucified, which is the stumbling block to Greeks and folly to Jews. Like, The preaching of Christ crucified is the stumbling block, and that's enough to stumble over. We don't have to put additional tripwires in place. And and I, I can't go through and name all of them. I don't even know all of them. But we must be aware of not of not adding places to stumble that are in addition to the Christ crucified, like, like our politics or our cultural preferences. The one thing needful for us is to preach Christ crucified. So let the world stumble over Jesus, not over us. Number two, 
We must not mind a little rejection, brothers and sisters. This, I, I only mentioned briefly the, the last half of the passage that I read. Jesus is rejected at Nazareth, and then he sends out his 12 apostles, and in verses 10 and 11, he says, he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there, and if any place will not receive you, and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. He's saying, listen, you will be rejected. And if we go, we went through the book of Acts, whatever, I don't recently. Um, we see that that happens. The, the, they go out preaching. They go out with magnificent power, wisdom from beyond this world, and they are rejected. They are beaten. They are, they are made to suffer. And the reason why is because a disciple is not above his master. If they hated me, they will hate you. If they rejected me, they will reject you. Now, <laughs> this is especially true for us American Christians. Um, there, there's an awful lot of um, weeping and gnashing of teeth for the ways our culture is rejecting Christian values. And if, if I, as both an American as, and as a Christian, if I react with anger to that, especially in the public square, with anger and vitriol and hatred and bitterness, then I have to take myself in hand and say, who taught you that you would not be rejected in this world? <laughs> who, who told you, and where did you get the idea that the culture would always agree with you? You did not get that from Jesus. If they hated me, they will hate you. If they rejected me, they will reject you. So many of us, I will place myself in this category, live as though this country owes us something. Now that's true. No, no, that's true. We all, as American citizens, live under the, under the authority of the Constitution, and it's a magnificent thing. We are guaranteed rights, and in my opinion, it's one of the most marvelous documents that's ever been written. Yes. But as Christians, first and foremost, we hold those debts that are owed us lightly. It's good to have those freedoms, don't get me wrong. Yes, and I prize them and I love them. But it should not surprise me if I find that they are rejected as time goes on. And, and here's the thing. When Christ was rejected, his response was to give up his life for those who rejected him. And so, brothers and sisters, we may do the same. We may give our lives away for those in our culture who reject us. And that, that is the good life in this world. It sounds like pain. It sounds like humiliation. It sounds like suffering. Yes, it is. But there is coming a day when there will be no more pain. There's coming a day when there will be no more humiliation. But today is not that day. 
So let us not mind a little rejection. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, it is it's hard for us. This, um, this feels like hard medicine. And yet, and yet it feels true and real and right. And so you've given us an awful lot to do, a new way to inhabit this world today in, in the life of our Lord. And you know that without your grace, without your power, we will be consigned to languish. We, we won't be able to accomplish what you've given us to accomplish. We smart under the lash of the whip. We refuse to submit humbly to humiliation and judgment. But, Father, if you would give us the grace to live as our Lord Jesus did, if you would fill us with your spirit so that we can love those and give our lives away for those who reject us, then we will be the happiest of all people. And so we offer ourselves to you. We pray this in the name of Jesus. And all God's people said, Well, we come to the table now. This is a table for those who have been made members of Christ's family. And if that's not you, you actually can come to this table today. The the only admission here is that you believe that he has died for you and for the forgiveness of your sins. This table is not a place where only the best people come. That's, that's not, the, that's not the, the fence. The fence is you have to know how truly wicked and helpless you are and how lavish is the grace of Christ on your behalf. And so this table is open to anyone who meets those requirements. So come and welcome to Jesus Christ.